Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. High Heels in Politics guest today has a remarkable history of public service work that spans 40 years. It's had a major positive impact on the lives of Cincinnatians and across Ohio. Our guest, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters, began his career as an assistant prosecutor in 1982. In 1988, after six years as the assistant prosecutor, Joe was elected as clerk of courts for Hamilton County. Then, in 1992, Joe returned to the prosecutor's office after being appointed and later elected prosecuting attorney. He was reelected in 1996. He served as Ohio State Treasurer, winning statewide elections in 1998 and 202. During his tenure as Treasurer, he was responsible for collecting, managing, and investing more than $11 billion. Yes, I said billion dollars. But Dieter's love and commitment for the role of prosecutor brought him back to Cincinnati. And he has won election as prosecuting attorney in 2004, 08, 12, 16, and 20. As the longest-serving prosecuting attorney, he presently oversees an office of more than 170 employees. The office prosecutes an array of offenses committed by adults and juveniles. The office serves as a legal counsel to all county agencies, county officials, and various county boards. Joe has been instrumental in many ways to better protect the citizens. He has created new divisions and units from violence against women and children, creation of veterans court, and drug court, to name a few. Joe is a lifelong Cincinnatian, graduating from St. X High, the University of Cincinnati, and the University College of Law. Joe is married, the father of four children, and two grandchildren. So welcome, Joe. Begin by talking about your decision to become a lawyer. Hi, Marianne. <laughs> Good to see you. When I was a little boy, my father, I'm the oldest of eight children, my father kind of drilled it into me that it was a good idea to be a lawyer. My dad was not a lawyer. He had a success, couple of successful businesses, and he always told me, he goes, no matter what you do with your law degree, lawyers write all the rules. So it's a good idea to know what they're doing. And he he said, you know, like half of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are lawyers. He just thought it was a good discipline for me scholastically to pursue. And so I did that. But during that time in law school in particular, I started working in the prosecutor's office for Simon Lease. And I was an intern for Cy. He paid me two fifty an hour, <laughs> and when I finally passed the bar exam, he paid me thirteen thousand dollars a year, which I thought was an immense amount of money back in nineteen eighty two but I was single i didn't have kids or anything so but I always wanted to be a lawyer from the time I was a little boy, and in class we'd have mock trials, and I would always participate as the lawyer and things like that, so it was kind of ingrained in me and Marion. As you know, my grandfather was a Democratic sheriff of Hamilton County for 24 years. His name was Dan Tehan. 
And so I grew up in kind of the courthouse environment as a little boy, and I saw him be sworn in as sheriff. I was very proud of the work he had done. And I remember one of the judges that swore him in, all the grandchildren used to be in the, in the jury box during a swearing in. And one of the judges came over and said, fellas, and I'm the old, as I said, the oldest of eight, but the first four of us were boys. This judge said, your grandfather chose public service, okay? He didn't choose to chase money. He chose to serve the community, and that is a very honorable profession to have. And it really hit me. I was just very little boy. I mean, I had to be maybe fourth grade or fifth grade when I heard that, and it affected me. And And that combined with being a lawyer kind of steered me into the position I am now. Your household had to be something with four boys, the first four for your mother and father. <laughs> My mom... That poor lady. <laughs> she was a wonderful mom, and uh, both my parents were, were awesome. But the first six were born in six years, and the first four were boys and then two girls. So we had a pretty wild household for quite some time. And we had two stragglers after that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then Tehan was well-known across Hamilton County. I, I mean, I was a newcomer to Cincinnati and I remember his name always being tossed around. Well, he was he was an NFL official. He's actually, I've gone up to Canton, Ohio, where there's a little exhibit about officials, and his shoes are there. He was the longest-serving official in NFL history. And at that time, he was the longest-serving sheriff in Hamilton County history until Cy took, I guess, a award from him. But <laughs> Grandpa was quite a guy. I still run into people that talk about him. It's oh, yeah. amazing. Well, what a, a life story. I mean, between Dan Tehan and Cy Lease, I mean, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I did podcasts. I did an interview with Cy here, and he talks about many of the cases. Oh, that- sure. So, you know, Cy and I, when, Cy, when I first became prosecutor, Cy was the sheriff. And I love Cy, but Cy and I— and at least the first few years, it we were just button heads. I mean, it was because Cy wanted to be the sheriff and Cy still wanted to be the prosecutor. <laughs> so, Correct. So we had some run-ins. But it was great. Later in our careers, we pretty much realized it was nonsensical. And to this day, I enjoy a very good relationship with Cy. Yeah, well, the Maplethorpe, I mean— he Maple. put Maplethorpe across the United he States. Did. I don't know. What well, that was Art. Art Nay was the prosecutor then when okay. during Maplethorpe. But I remember that case, and <laughs> Cy was going nuts about that stuff, you know. And I, I made a conscious decision as a prosecutor. You have to decide what you're going to prioritize. And we didn't have violent crime like we have today. Right. Back when Cy was prosecutor, and a lot of Cy's focus was the dynamic of increasing obscenity in our community. And he felt that that was his job. And it's still our job, if it, if it is. But you have to judge this, these materials now are so different in terms of delivery ability. For instance, I mean, I talked to Cy, probably still when he was sheriff, I said, Cy, with the internet, unless— we're dealing with 
some type of pornography involving children or maybe animals or something like that, we're not going to get a conviction for obscenity. It's just people are so desensitized to that stuff now because it's everywhere. But we're still incredibly successful at prosecuting child pornography cases, and we'll continue to do that. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because really, you watch uh, any of the shows put on by things like Netflix or HBO, they hold nothing back. Nothing. Nudity front and back. Right. Men even for the first time. I remember when I was prosecutor during the mid-90s and there was some play that came to Cincinnati called Poor Superman or something. And at one point, two guys were in bed together, allegedly naked. And Cy wanted us to prosecute I said, Cy, there is an exception for a bona fide artistic endeavor, and it's hard to debate that this isn't a bona fide artistic play. And Cy didn't talk to me for a year or something after that. But I think we made the right call. I mean, you got to be smart about Mm -hmm. these things. And first of all, there's no jury who's going to convict anybody in obscenity for that. Yep. But, you know, Cy, God bless him. He, He had his mindset on something, and he's like a bulldog. Well, let's get back to being prosecuting attorney and Joe Dieters. One of the first programs that you created was the Victim Witness Advocate. Tell us about your reason for starting this. Well, I started off in this office as an assistant prosecutor, and I tried you know, probably hundreds of cases as an assistant prosecutor. But when I got it to the felony level and we're dealing with murder cases, serial killer cases, I recognized very quickly that we had a problem because we would go to court. I would go to court as an assistant prosecutor. Victims' families would be sitting out in the audience and the defense would make motions like motions to dismiss because of this. And the families are freaking out because they don't realize This is just pretty much a perfunctory thing they do. They ask for a motion to dismiss to protect their rights of appeal and things like that. But the families, the victims' families didn't know what was going on. And I recognized that quickly. And there was a young lady named Sarah Mayshack who's married to John Williams, been happily married to John. And Sarah came to me and said, I think I can help you solve this. Let's start a program. And we brought in, I think, three young ladies. I know Sean Schaefer was one, and there was a whole bunch of them. And they would sit with the victims, and when this nonsense would occur from the defense, they could sit there and say, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. Everything's fine. You know, that kind of assurance that we couldn't stand up and from council table and walk back and talk to them in the middle of a hearing. So having someone there that knows what's going on, is their contact with the office, made a great deal of sense. When I was in law school, my last year in law school, there was a horrible murder involving Monty Tewksbury. John Bird, John Brewer killed Monty Tewksbury. Coring Township, I think it was, at a Kingquick. He was a P&G executive. And there were three co-defendants. Bird killed him, Brewer, and Danny... Oh, oh my gosh, I'm getting old, I guess. Anyway, the getaway driver. And the trials were held in three separate courtrooms at the same time. And Sharon Tewksbury, the widow of Monty, 
had gotten to the scene before the ambulances even came. He called his wife as he lay on the floor dying. She rushed to King Quick and was there when and he described what had happened. And so Sharon was a witness in all three cases. They were tried at once, and they needed somebody basically to act as a victim witness person for the for the Tewksbury family. And that role fell to me as a law student in 1982. So I... Was I saw the value of having a victim witness person in that courtroom because that was kind of my first big job in the office. Yeah. You also had, did a program for first-time nonviolent offenders. How does a Hamilton County rank in the state of Ohio with the number of diversion programs? Well, look, I am all for saving the savable. I mean, people make mistakes. I get it. People have addiction problems. I understand that. Those people don't belong in jail, okay? They just don't. My focus is on violent offenders, repeat offenders, and it's not hard to determine who those people are. But in terms of the diversion programs, we have more diversion programs in Hamilton County than any county in Ohio. I started the first drug court with Deidre Hare. Back in the early 90s, we brought the first drug court to Ohio here in Cincinnati to get people treatment. And there's great joy and success in that program. And I'm very proud of our drug court and what's done thus far. But there's other areas like Veterans Court. You mentioned in your intro that they have unique problems, you know, veterans coming back with PTSD, things of that nature. We have a variety of different diversion programs to keep people out of prison and try to turn their lives around. I'm a great believer in that. But on the other hand, Marianne, there are people that are not savable. And when you kill a cop, you kill multiple people, you show a total disregard for human life, my job is to, and it sounds cold-blooded, but you need to warehouse them as long as you can because they won't stop killing. Correct. Now, that's an interesting topic because let's talk about state issue one because it kind of deals with the criminal and uh, stories with this. So tell us about state issue one and the Du Bois ruling on that. Back in January, we had a murder case still pending, I think, in our county. This guy named Du Bois charged with murder. He had fled to Las Vegas, had Thousands of dollars in cash, IDs, not himself, different credit cards, different names. He was fleeing. The judge set a bond, I think, at a million and a half dollars when they finally got him back. The defense said the bond was too high, which, you know, you have to give great discretion to these trial judges. They see this every day. They they know who's going to show up and who's not. They know who's a danger to the community and who's not. I would describe it as a stunning decision by the Ohio Supreme Court. It was the chief justice and three Democrats. They voted. And I tell people this in public speaking all the time. And they, people think I'm, I'm not being truthful with them, but it's absolutely true. They voted that when setting a bond, judges should not consider the safety of the community. The safety of a community. It's interesting. All they can consider is, how much money can they afford and to make sure that they show up? That's it. Yeah, but many drug so dealers if I never— have, yeah. So if I have a serial killer who kills 20 girls, 
The judge can't say, you know what, for the safety of the community, I'm going to set this bond at $10 million. No, he can't do that anymore. Now he's got to say, sir, how much can you afford? And I hate to break it to the judges on that court that voted this way, but drug dealers, big drug dealers, they don't report their income. Correct. This is what I was right, going exactly. to say. Well, they exactly. never file taxes. No, they don't. And they're not going to tell the truth to the court how much money they got. It's ludicrous on its face. But we could have sat back and taken it. We didn't. We decided, Dave Yost, the attorney general, and I decided we are going to mount an effort to make it in the Ohio Constitution that the judges shall consider the safety of the community when they set a bond. It's pathetic that we have to go to this length, but we did. To do that, we had to get three-fifths majority of the House of Representatives in Ohio and three-fifths majority of the Senate. I'll tell you, it came down to the last minute, but every Republican voted for that to go on the ballot for people to decide if they want judges to consider the safety of the community and every Democrat voted no. Now, how that happens, how you can go back to your constituency, and I'm talking about the Democratic legislators in Ohio who tend to represent urban areas, okay, where our worst crime is, where our worst violent criminals are, saying the judge, when they said bond, shouldn't consider the safety of the community. How do you answer to your voters for that? That's pathetic. Their job is to protect their citizens. That's the number one job of government, and they're not doing it. And I hope this fall people recognize that. 2020 was a very difficult year in Hamilton County for Republicans. Trump lost the county by almost 70,000 votes. I just want to change the subject a little by the next question. With such disparity at the top of the ticket, how were you ever able to win? Well, we identified the campaign, and I sensed it. I didn't have any data to support it, but the safety of the community and public safety cuts across demographic lines. I mean, it just does. There's not a person, unless you are mentally unstable, that doesn't want to be able to walk to their convenience store, go to school, do things like that without fear of being attacked. And we recognize, and if you want to get into the weeds on this, I can, we recognize that there was a lot of educated, white, East Side women who hated Donald Trump. And now I've never met Donald Trump, and I, the vast majority of his policies I totally applaud. I, his style had something to be taken aback at, but that's the way he is. And we went right to those voters on the East Side and said, look, you might not like the president, but this is about Cincinnati, and this is about the safety of your kids. Now, do you want to grow up, have your kids grow up in Los Angeles or Chicago or Baltimore or New York, or do you want them to grow up in Cincinnati? And they made the choice, and as you may know, I beat Donald Trump by 90,000 votes. That's what caused the difference. You talked about, we. I laugh about this all the time with my, my family, but talk about my grandpa Tehan. I ran into an old guy at the courthouse right before the election in 20, and he said, Joe, I never thought I'd see the day 
your grandfather was the only Democrat who could win in Hamilton County, and now you're probably the only Republican that could win in Hamilton County. Well, you know, the courthouse has changed because of that election. It has. Now, how has that changed your view of what's going on in the courthouse? Well, it's impacted us a great deal because we used to take it for granted that if somebody was charged with a serious offense or has been charged repeatedly with serious offenses, the judges were going to lock them up. Well, we can't take that for granted anymore with the judges we have. Now, some of the judges that were elected are great. There's a few that don't believe that these people should be in jail, and they actively seek ways to free dangerous people, and it's scary. I point this out every Tuesday. We have a little thing on our website called uh, the Rap Sheet, and we say just factually exactly what these judges are doing in Hamilton County. And the judges, a lot of them, are mad about it. Now, I don't understand that because if I'm a judge and I make a decision, I'm going to be able to stand up and say why I did this. Why are you trying to hide it from everybody? What's their motivation to say, I don't want you talking about my cases? Really? Well, I'm going to talk about your cases. It's going to be the truth. We recognize it has to be truthful. I don't editorialize and call them names or anything like that. I just say, these judges are letting these people out. You need to know that. And you need to know that in the next election. Because you didn't know that, obviously, when you elected these people. Because the vast majority of Hamilton County citizens want safety, number one. And some of these judges aren't giving it. You know, Marianne, I wouldn't even call it outspoken. But I have spoken out saying, look, this is what these judges are doing. And the defense bar files a massive grievance against me in the Supreme Court of Ohio saying that I'm denigrating the judges and all this stuff, which is nonsense. It got thrown out last week by the Supreme Court's Disciplinary Council. But nonetheless, their defense to their decisions, it doesn't just happen here in Hamilton County. It's happened across the nation. Their defense on decisions, these goofy-ass decisions they're making— is to silence you. They don't want you talking. I don't care if it's stuff, Russian collusion on Twitter. I don't care what it is. The far left wants you to shut up. But I'm not going to shut up. How can people, the public who are listening to this, find this rap or sheet program? They can go to the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office, and it's on our website. So you just go HamiltonCountyProsecutorsOffice.com? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's it, it, .org, but if you okay. just do a Google search, a Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office, you'll get our site, and you can click through, and you can see the rap sheet. We also have a Facebook page they can look at the rap sheet on, too. It will describe what's going on in our courts, and frankly, we only pick like three cases a week. Our challenge is, which three are we going to pick? I mean, because it's endless. Well, how can, if our listeners want to volunteer and help with passage of the issue one or make contributions, how can they do that? We're going to give you a website. It's called Coalition for a Safer Ohio. And that is going to be the mechanism by which people can make contributions or they can volunteer. It's not up yet, but it's going to be up probably in the next week, 10 days. And I'll make sure that make sure that your listeners know about that. 
let's talk a minute about your, you have four children, and you just walked your daughter down the aisle last week. I did, week. I did. Now, how are they doing with the father who's always in the news? <laughs> um, I think they've, they grew up in it, and I, I think they take it, they think everybody's on the news. I mean, I'm married to Tanya Rourke, who's on the news at Channel 9 every night. So my kids are kind of used to it. But look, I don't downplay the significance of how it's impacted their lives because I'm sure it has. People say, oh, your dad's an idiot or your dad's great or what, you know, they get all, all kinds of feedback. The challenge is that they, you make sure that your kids feel loved and they know that what they hear publicly is not their dad. <laughs> you know? Well, and you've all lived on the West Side. You have a large family over there. I know many. There's of lots them. of Dieters in the West Side. I actually grew up in Finneytown, so that's kind of the middle. Not yeah, by saying but that. on the West Side, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean Dieters. Everyone knows the Dieters family, yep. etc. It's been really great, Joe, catching up with you. I want to thank you for all your fighting for the rights of victims over your career. I want you to know that I will vote for the passage of State Issue 1. And thank you, Joe Dieters, for coming on High Heels and Well, politics. if I have a second, Marion, you have been great to me in my life. I appreciate everything that you've done for this community, too. Thank you. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.